Hi, this is Cullen with just a quick note about episode 19A. Um, the film uh, Shadow Man, which I review on this episode, is a documentary about an artist named Richard Hamilton. Um, for some reason, probably because I was thinking of Charles Hamilton, the rapper, I refer to him repeatedly in this episode as Charles Hamilton. The subject of the film Shadow Man is Richard Hamilton, not Charles. Thanks and enjoy the show. You may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. Let the water hold me down. Letting the days go by. Water flowing under the into the blue again. After the body's gone, once in a lifetime. Hello welcome to episode 19a of arts and crass the highbrow lowbrow film podcast i am cullen and i am todd and um thinking about yourself i'm five inches tall that's all (laughs) nice nice uh well welcome back todd yeah thanks man it's been a little while it's been a little while um we haven't recorded in a year um I take full responsibility for that. It's my fault. Life got in the way. Life got really busy in uh, 2017. And nothing better than uh, the Virginia Film Festival to remotivate us and light a little fire underneath us to uh, get back to the podcast. Absolutely. Um, we uh, we did what we usually do and go into the Virginia Film Festival and set those days aside and watch as many films as we possibly could. This year's Virginia Film Festival took place, as always, in Charlottesville, Virginia. This year was November 9th through November 12th, um, and <clears throat> I watched 17 blocks, and Todd watched 15. We've got 24 total to talk about, because there was a lot of crossover, especially on uh, on Saturday. And uh, we're just going to dive right into the festival and all that it entails. Todd and I got press badges this year. Yes, we did. I also want to thank the festival itself for having a pretty obvious application process Mm -hmm. for press passes this year for the very first time. Yeah, you know, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it really does seem like every year, you know, every year one of the things we do on this uh, uh, coverage podcast is talk about some of the things that we liked in general about how the fest was run and some of the things that we would rather have seen changed. And last year we did say, hey, press passes, this is something that, and film badges in general, this is something that it would be great if they implemented. And this year they implemented it. So it is nice to see our nitpicks being addressed um, as the years go on. So this was the 30th Virginia Film Festival, 30 years strong. Um, annual. It's grown and grown and grown. Obviously, this year, you know, last year the big headline uh, guest of honor was Werner Herzog, and this year it was Mr. Spike Lee. So it's starting to seem like there's nobody they can't get, and uh, I have no reason to think that it won't keep getting bigger and bigger. Before we dive into the films themselves, uh, and this uh, episode 19A is going to cover the first half of the festival, Thursday and Friday, we've got 12 films to discuss, or 12 screenings to discuss. I think we'll we'll just, like we usually do, talk in general about the festival and our overall impressions. Uh, I would say that this year, 
like last year the same way it didn't hit me right off the bat as you know a bunch of stuff when i first looked at the at the schedule i wasn't really like blown away by a bunch of stuff i was desperate to see and i will say that my festival got off to a little bit of a slow start but um in in general i'd say the program was uh just as strong as it has been in years prior if not a little stronger yeah i'll follow up um by reiterating um a pretty similar experience that on first look when it was first released um, it looked like an exceptionally quality um, schedule. And it was probably about halfway through the film festival that I still felt as if this um, year's fest wasn't carrying quite the same energy as last year's. Not that it wasn't carrying the same quality, just not the same energy. And by the end of it, I had to kind of uh, revoke any of those critiques and say, my gosh, if anything cinematically this year may have even been stronger yeah um that's hard to say last year was great exhibition wise i think um i don't think they added any new venues this year i think it was all the same venues they've been using you know the paramount of course always always a, a beautiful romantic experience watching something in that in that huge uh, 1200 uh, 1500 something like that seat theater we are blessed to have the violet crown right there downtown where i saw most of the screenings that i went to and they seem to be getting better every year they too. seem to be getting better every year too um <laughs> they, I, they kind of play centerpiece to yeah, the festival yeah yeah they do that's where the main box office is now and and then, of course, there was uh, PVCC, the Dickinson Center, where I saw one film. Always, always nice to go there. I did see one at uh, Stab, St. Anne's Belfield. Perfectly serviceable as a, a film exhibition um, room. And uh, saw one at uh, Newcomb Hall, and I saw one at Culbreth. Uh, so I hit all the usual spots. I don't think. Oh, and Vinegar Hill, of course. I saw Absolutely. one there. So I don't think there was any place a film was screening that I didn't see one this year. And it was all up to par. The good things that struck me were pretty much the same as they've always been. And the fact that they've corrected some of the things I had trouble with before. The badges were there. The conflicts uh, in the past, I've complained about that. In years past, I was pulling my hair out. Um, L versus the Love Witch was a big one for me. And there were multiple ones uh, last year that I was just like pulling my hair out thinking, why are they doing this to me? <laughs> but that's going to happen at any festival and you know the fact that i only had one this year shows that they i think they're getting better about that and my other nitpick last year was with things not starting on time they did a better job with that this year too first addressing the press badges absolutely which was something that they added this year that i was also elated by um, but i do want to clarify they did not add commercial badges mm -hmm. so they still do not have a um, universal festival badge um, or um, a day a day badge that you can buy i will say that my one nitpick this year um is about accessibility mm -hmm. it seems to me that in years past um there have been a lot more free screenings. And it's a shame because $13 is the standard ticket price for most of the, of the screenings, which is a lot of money. And it's really kind of a shame that with so many important films that I think would really benefit from having as huge an audience as possible that, you know, you're charging 13 bucks for somebody who's not a student or an educator um, or, a, or a donor to the festival. 
And I do understand to a certain extent that film festivals cost money. They have a lot of overhead. They got to bring Spike Lee here, give him a stipend. All these big names, give them stipends, you know, plus, you know, every film has a screening fee. They have to employ people and pay them. They have to pay the venues. It's There is a lot of overhead that goes into it. And it's also understood, I think, by festival goers that a festival screening is kind of a prestige presentation. Might be the only time that you'll get to see a film, you know, some of these films on the big screen, and you pay for the privilege. I understand that, but it still seems like there's a lot of people who might really benefit from uh, seeing a lot of these films or might want to who are kind of left out in the cold because the pricing can be a little prohibitive. It was very evident this year from ticket sales, everything sold out so much faster. Oh, yeah. Every theater was so much more full. Things that used to almost be taken for granted that I could go the day of and get a ticket. Yeah. Not this year. Yeah. And I want to applaud the festival for that. But it's an adjustment for those of us that are locals who have been going for a while. This isn't a festival um, fueled by locals with some offshoots and filmmakers anymore. This is yeah. truly the Virginia Film Festival. They're doing really good business which is great for them, and it's great for us. You could probably afford to have some more free events and... Be a little populist about it. With, yeah. With, with the success, throw out a little more. I, I think this is a good point, too, as we're talking about the success of the festival, to throw out um, some props to the men and women who made it possible. Yes, yes, Jody Kilbasa, festival director, and Wesley Harris, festival programmer. Uh, yes. Shouts to them. They are awesome dudes. I cannot thank them enough for um, the uh, creative lead they've taken on this festival. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I also, I was going to save this for later, but I owe personal thanks to my buddy Ty Cooper, mm -hmm. um, outreach uh, coordinator, who... Uh, hooked me and my class up with some free tickets to a screening uh, for an instructional field trip. That's the kind of thing I was just saying a minute ago I'd love to see more of, uh, but thanks to Ty for that. And, uh, of course, our our woman on the inside, our, our lady on the say. ground, uh, last year's special guest on the podcast, uh, Miss uh, Miss Carrie Reichardt. She is officially uh, within the ranks of the Film Fest crew now. Yeah. Uh, she is a true hired hand. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, when I brought up um, bringing her back on as a guest, she said, this may be a conflict of interest yeah. now. <laughs> you know, Carrie's the type of person that if she's going to trash a film, she wants to trash a film, and she doesn't want to have to worry about the person who she... Uh, Picked up from the airport, right? <laughs> Somehow I, hearing this and, and do have to hearing say, her trash their film. I crossed paths with her numerous times during the festival and rarely got um, more than a few words with her because she was taking her job very seriously and yep. seemed to be doing an excellent job. Yeah. As, as did all of the um, film festival crew, including the volunteers. So three hundred plus community volunteers to make this thing happen. Bravo wow. to all of you. Um, over one hundred and fifty films screened this year. Over 100 guests and filmmakers this year. Nice. Including the likes of Spike Lee and William H. Macy and... Anthony Michael Hall? Was he really here or was, he was that just really a mystical here. rumor? <laughs> 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 I didn't see him. Truly an eclectic film festival. Yeah. But an eclectic film festival that definitely still has a focal point and a personality. Mm -hmm. And so, all right, just had to throw that out real quick. All right. Should we get to the films? Let's please do. All right, so... Uh, Todd started off his festival with guns a blazing. After I picked up my press pass and got my coffee and looked at my uh, phone, I realized 
oh my gosh, I got just enough time to jump into the part of Bonnie and Clyde that I wanna see most, the last 20 to 25 minutes. And I'd almost forgotten just how brutal. I'm talking about 200 shots maybe, I mean, infinite shots, almost like a, a freaking uh, automatic weapon going off. Mm -hmm. And never had that been done in cinema before. Um, so as I'm watching this scene, I, I'm just, once again, like I was the first time I saw it, in awe that this was done in the year that it was done. So it was a pinnacle point in American cinema of uh, saying, of opening up new doors, as well as um, having quite an ambiguous ending and, and feeding more into the uh, narrative uh, rules of, of European cinema. Especially for somebody like me whose interests, you know, lean towards the macabre and the violent mm -hmm. and the extreme and the grotesque, uh, my film world would be a very, very different and probably much poorer if it were not for Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde. All right, so Bonnie and Clyde, highbrow? Oh, yeah, like you need to ask. Like I only saw 20 minutes of it this time, and I've seen it two to three times before that. This is a film that is timeless. If you have not seen this film, go watch it. So my first film was uh, Thursday evening at the Violet Crown, and the movie was called Magnum Opus. This is a new film, uh, 2017. It's an American film directed by uh, Kevin Elliott, who was there to uh, talk about the film afterwards. Um, I didn't stay for much of it, of, of the Q&A, that is. Uh, so this is a film that is about um, an artist who is very reclusive, very mysterious. He's a, um, an Iraq War veteran, the first Iraq War in the 90s. And um, he has kind of dropped out of society after the war and then sort of reemerged as a, an artist, a painter, a fine art painter. Um, who makes these really dis not disturbing but very intense paintings uh, focusing on violence, uh, surveillance, uh, weaponry. And there's a new curator uh, for the gallery who's been hired who um, wants to insert herself into his life. As as every as every good or not so good pitch for a film like this says, all is not as it seems. Um, I will say that my experience of the film, also all was not as it seemed because it really seemed like I was going to enjoy it. <laughs> and I. I, I love a setup like that. I love films about artists. I love intrigue. I love, um, you know, uh, comment, you know, commentary about war and violence and intelligence and surveillance and all these things. It is a spy movie. You, I don't think it's even a spoiler to say that it's a spy movie because it's pretty evident from the very beginning basically what's going on you don't know the details but i think there were two main problems with this one was that the director and he said this in his intro went into it very deliberately not wanting to take a side and this is a theme that i think will come up in uh, another film we're going to talk about from the weekend. When you seek to make an objective film about a social issue, by not taking a side, you are defaulting to the status quo. I like films that challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. 
every conceivable viewpoint is taken in the film to the point where you don't know what the film is trying to convey to you. The other problems were very simply, if you're like, there's a, a fine art to making a twisty espionage thriller. You have to keep the audience with you. You can't lose them because when you're confused, you check out very easily. Uh, this film didn't know how to do that. And also the dialogue was simply horrendous. Um, whoever wrote this had a very bad ear for how people actually talk. It looked good. It was obviously shot on a pretty low budget uh, as basically three sets. Um, maybe four sets. How'd they do with their sets? They were good. It seems like uh, some of these films at least were were selected for the festival more based on their production value than their storytelling. In my experiences with festivals, that this seems to be a bit of a syndrome. Sometimes you're simply deciding between two of not the greatest films yeah. and the one that has the sharper and higher production value probably is going to make it in. Gotcha. It is a film that wants to say something, which I always have forgiveness for. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to know what it wants to say. It just knows it wants to say something about these topics. Lowbrow. Okay. All right. So, Todd, what was your next screening? All right. So my next one was a uh, annual tradition of mine. Uh, Lighthouse Studios this is a nonprofit here in Charlottesville, Virginia, that has um, blown up. Their basic mission is to teach young people, um, kids and teenagers, filmmaking. And in my world, there is nothing more noble on earth. So every year, Lighthouse Studios um, at Vinegar Hill, which they now own, and then they offer it as a screening room to the entire festival, but they also use it as um, the first screening on that first day for a um, short display um, or exhibition of the films that have been made by their students. Inevitably, as the short block continues, they move into some of the older students and some of the teenagers. And last year, there was a young woman who made a film that was absolutely stunning. And when I asked about her afterwards, um, the response was, oh, yeah, she's going to Tish next year. And I was like, darn right she is. <laughs> but um, better than most films that I saw at my uh, university and student screenings. Um, this year, very sadly, I had to leave after the first 45 minutes. So right when they were starting to get into some of the older kids' films, I had to take off for uh, my next screening. So I saw the first 45 minutes. They were charming. They were lovely. They were everything I expect of The Lighthouse. And just slightly sad that I missed some of the more mature, savvy ones by the older students. Now, you did say when I asked you about it um, a few days ago that one of the films... Yes. You watched, uh, did uh, seem like it was made with a little more skill and by some slightly older older kids. It was a music video. You're absolutely right, and I shouldn't brush over that. That's a shame, because it was kind of the transition. It was the last one I saw before having to leave, and could re and that was the moment I realized we were about to move into the slightly more mature, more advanced films. And so, yeah, it was a music video. They played a lot of mirror image, um, a lot of post-production um, that played really beautifully. It was perfect for music, and I don't even know that it was intended to be a music video, but it absolutely was a music video and, a, and an exceptional music video for a couple of teenagers to make. Bravo for restraint um, and definitely bravo for the artistry and for the editing and post-production on it. Yeah, I the reason I brought that up and I'm glad you had good things to say about it was because I found out yesterday um, just because she 
asked me about it and mentioned it that that was one of my students who made that, oh, that music video. Yay. Yeah. Summer, uh, Miss Summer Kazwan was the director of Summer Kazwan did an exquisite job. So that would be my um, bravo to a young teenager really um, stretching further than I would expect a young teenager to be stretching with cinema, honestly. There you go. Yeah. Lighthouse Studio Shorts. Yes, indeed. So my next film was uh, also at the Violet Crown uh, a little later on on uh, Thursday night. <clears throat> this was a documentary called Shadow Man. Actually, before I talk about Shadow Man, um, uh, there was a short uh, that screened in front of it, an eight-minute short called Walk Along. <clears throat> uh, this was directed by Jason Robinson, and uh, it was basically a walk-along with um, a police officer on uh, what appeared to be like a Friday night or a Saturday night uh, in a bustling uh, downtown bar district of what I very quickly pieced together was Wilmington, North Carolina. I have zero doubt that it was uh, made by a student probably for an assignment at the same film school that Todd attended. Which means that uh, we are pretty sure we know the professor that they would be making this film under. Uh -huh. And once again, a one I think very highly of. There you go. Yeah. Then the feature started, and the feature was Shadow Man, uh, 2017, directed by Oren Jacoby. This is a documentary about an artist named Charles Hambleton. And this was one of my heartaches. We'll get yeah. to that later, but uh, I really wanted to see this one. So Charles Hamilton was an, uh, he was actually a Canadian artist uh, from British Columbia, I'm pretty sure, who came to New York in the early 1980s to be a part of that early 1980s Greenwich Village Urban, scene. Yeah. Um, and he was, he first came to prominence, the first big, uh, thing he did and he was a classically trained painter oh absolutely um, yeah. he he went to art school he was very much he wasn't he wasn't a punk kid what first brought him notoriety was he would go out into cities where he would draw on the ground he would actually paint not draw with white paint um outlines like a like a chalk outline in a murder scene and he would like put some red paint on there sometimes for blood and it was very very artistically arranged these murder scenes, but they also looked like real murder scenes. And it became this intriguing mystery it was written about in these city papers. Who is doing this? And like people thought there were real murders. And he, he, he like wrote some letters to the press and signed them a uh, Mr. E, like mystery. And then after he got to New York, he started doing these, uh, what he's still best known for to this day, these shadow figures painted on walls um, in the public space, uh, a, a very deceptively crude, because it looks like it only took him 15 seconds to do it. And indeed, they have some archival footage in the film of him doing one in like, you know, 20, 30 seconds, but very meticulously planned out in advance and extremely, in, a, in only a few strokes, very artistically rendered, giving you this sense of stance, of physical presence, of motion, you know. Um, like I say, deceptively simple uh, in black paint, 
silhouettes on walls of men. And it became a sensation. They were everywhere. Everybody who, you know, in New York City in the early 80s, you know, had had stumbled upon one of these shadow men just while out walking the streets. And people talk about how they surprised them and they terrified them. And it was, again, for a while, you didn't know who it was, but eventually he revealed himself and became the toast of the town. Life magazine, he's in Time magazine, he's in the New York Times. Only in New York. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every major publication in the world wrote about him. And certainly in the United States. Guy was a giant star. Um, And then he disappeared. He didn't really disappear. He went to Europe, but he kind of dropped out. He never played the game. Um, And, you know, one of the things, this is interesting because this is going to kind of resonate with one of the films I saw the next day. Three, you know, there were basically three huge names in the street art scene at that time. And that was Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and (laughs) Charles Hamilton. I had heard of Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, of course. I had never heard of Charles Hamilton. And but he was like a lot of people at the time, according to the documentary, said that he was the most he was the most brilliant of the three and he was for a while the most famous of the three. But Basquiat and Herring, they got hooked up with that whole Warhol scene and started making the rounds and it's a sad reality. You gotta play that social game and Basquiat it's all about becomes... who you know. You know, you become legends and, you know, huge celebrities and Hamilton didn't. He went to Europe. He uh, did some exhibits in Europe, painted a lot of shadow men in various European cities. Living the artist life. Yeah, and then he changed his style completely. He started painting seascapes. <laughs> and Yeah, yeah, landscapes and sunsets and these huge, massive, like, 24 by 24 foot canvases of, like, you know, uh, sea foam. Then it's around this time that the drug addiction starts to really take a toll. He, they say in the film he was doing drugs, um, you know, all through these periods, but he generally kept it under control. But as we, as I believe heroin, he has some bad relationships with some art dealers and some galleries, and he eventually finally just says fuck it to playing the game at all. Next thing you know, he's homeless, and he's riding his bike around New York, carrying a canvas to a restaurant trying to sell the canvas to the restaurant in exchange for dinner. He's living in flop houses. He's living in crack houses. He's living literally on the streets. At one point, he lived in an abandoned uh, gas station, which looked like something out of Mad Max. But this entire time, the amazing thing about it is the entire time he kept painting. Somebody would, like, dig him out of whatever hole he was staying in like once every 10 years or so and they would ask him what he's been doing and his response is always oh i've been painting someone even in the film says i've never seen anyone that deep in in their addiction continue to work and produce at this high level because the stuff he was doing was still amazing now what was his persona like as far as how he interacted with others at this point how much of that did you see uh we actually saw quite a bit because could you see his disintegration oh yes very much now did he disintegrate mentally and artistically also no the guy keeps shooting himself in the foot every time an opportunity would come around like at one point and this is when the dude was in his like 60s he's on the street um 
some like rich Russian guy comes along and says, hey, I will pay for you to live in. It was actually the Trump uh, Plaza Hotel. I will pay for you to live in a suite at the Trump Plaza. All you have to do is give me a painting a month. And of course, he managed to fuck that up. He had a show in 2007. That was his big comeback where uh, Giorgio Armani sponsored his oh like God. comeback show. And they did like a huge exhibit in, in New York, a huge one in Paris. All these celebrities come in. Uh, like one of his paintings sold for like, you know, half a million dollars at this auction. And of course, he manages to fuck that up too. He's not—he's not coming through. He's not delivering art, even though he's painting constantly. He like decides that none of the art is making is good enough, so he just destroys it. He died on October 29th, eleven days before the film was screened. You really got caught up in the energy of it and the highs and lows in his life, and you know this this like initial rush of fame and excitement, and then the downward spiral and the degradation and maybe a little bit of hopefulness here and there and you know the ups and downs keep going um it was really well done without being an avant-garde you know reinvent the wheel kind of documentary um and i mean it it's an easy sell for me i love as i said with the last uh with the last film i had two uh films about painters in a row i love movies about artists I love movies about New York. I love New York in the 80s. I always love a documentary that shines a light on somebody that a person or a place or a thing that I'd never heard of, and I leave it wondering why I'd never heard of this. Yeah. Uh, highbrow, very highbrow all the, all the way around for me. Something that I needed to throw into the opening when we were talking about strengths and weaknesses that um, was probably my one new uh, critique of this year's Film Fest. Something I think that they did really well this year was they put more shorts in front of features this year, I feel like, than they had in the past. I love that. With that being said, and with that compliment, I also have to throw out a critique um, on the other side of it, was that I don't feel like all of the shorts in front of the features were paired as well as they could have been. Another little thing was um, there were four great blocks, but that there was not an avant-garde experimental block this year. And for a festival that's as eclectic as this film festival, I really missed having a block of experimental shorts because that's where shorts shine the most. What was your next film, Todd? So my next one was, uh, according to the festival, the big one. <laughs> the, um, this was the um, opening night featured film, Downsizing, directed by Alexander Payne. I'm sure um, most of our audience is probably uh, familiar with Alexander Payne or at least familiar with some of his work. His best known, I think you would have to say his best known being Sideways, uh, one of his earlier yeah. films that's kind of become a little cult darling as an yeah. election. Um, Nebraska was the most recent one, super low budget. This film was a little bigger and a little more stretching than anything I'd ever seen him do. Um, there are... Um, it's a satire, and there are certain, you know, what you would call sci-fi or supernatural elements to it. A um, um, little bit more, a little bit more of an escape from realism than what I've seen in most of his films, but still with all of the same um, satirical, um, soft romanticism intertwined together um, that. I have found in almost every film I've ever seen of his. This mm -hmm. was a perfect atmosphere to screen this film in. 
It was followed up by one of the better Q&As I've seen at a film festival with Mark Johnson. He was a great subject for a Q&A. The atmosphere itself, as well as being the opening night film at the Paramount with all of the energy, it was just always a lovely experience to be there for that. I'll read you the tagline that IMDb has. A social satire in which a guy realizes he would have a better life if he were to shrink himself. Not a bad line, honestly, for a log line. So the general idea is that this new technology has been invented by this, I believe, Norwegian, some sort of Scandinavian scientist, um, that finally has solved the problem of overpopulation in the world and environmental depletion in the world. He's uh, figured out a way to shrink people and the ratio, they repeat the ratio numerous times, it's something like one to 2,000 and something, but basically you become five inches tall. And so they start all of these communities, eventually they start these communities, these kind of idyllic communities, um, pitching some sort of utopian reality um, if you're willing to downsize. And so you start off with your protagonist, played by Matt Damon. Um, I particularly love Matt Damon in roles like this. Um, chubby, insecure, middle-aged man, and he embraces it so fully. And, uh, and I find him to be at his best in, in, in those sorts of roles. And, um, and so he's kind of the guy that nothing goes right for. You know, he had gone to med school and then he has to return home to take care of his ailing mother. So he ends up becoming an occupational therapist at some sort of factory. Um, but he's a good guy. He's just a good guy that just wants life to be a little more interesting. You know, that grass is always greener on the other side kind of thing. And he's very enamored from the downsizing from the very beginning. He finally meets an old friend of his who's downsized. He meets him at a class reunion and they come in in a little glass box that they're carried in. And everybody that's downsized seems to be so happy. Because also when you downsize and you go to these um, places, if you have $100,000 to your name, you go in as a multimillionaire because for a year's supply of food for a five-inch person, it doesn't cost very much money. You can buy a mansion for, you know, a few thousand dollars. Finally, he convinces his wife that they should downsize. And it's all handled very subtly. You know, it seems as if they've come to the agreement completely together. They have their going away party. All their friends, you know, are excited for them. A few challenge them. There's a guy at the bar. You start realizing that there's a little bit of a feud going on um, at this point um, between big people and small people, like a little bit of resentment. Some of the big people not thinking so highly of it. So you go into downsizing and you have to go through, you know, they have to shave your eyebrows, your head, the whole deal. Um, so Matt Damon goes through it and they separate the women and the men. They downsize them and then they get sent to Leisureland where he's supposed to meet back up with his wife. The minute he wakes up from having been downsized, realizing his mouth sore from teeth being pulled and all these adjustments and, and realizing that he's five inches tall and in a tiny little bed and on and on, he gets a phone call immediately from Kristen Wiig, his wife, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She basically chickened out at the last minute. That, that literally ends the intro. So the intro is very long. And then it moves into his experience in Leisureland. He has this annoying neighbor, Christoph Waltz, who's just this European party guy who he hooks up with, who has a housemaid who has a 
prosthetic leg and can hardly walk. She's a little Vietnamese lady who's just this tough bitch of a lady <laughs> and um, takes no smack from anybody. So Matt Damon meets her just from hanging out at his place and this whole little <laughs> twisted world that's opening up for him as a depressed man who's been living there alone for a year. So he goes on to actually befriend her, befriend the party guy, Christoph Waltz, and realizes that there's actually a ghetto in Leisureland that he did not know existed where all the people who have no money or who have uh, disabilities all live and have almost no food. As it goes on, he eventually finds his purpose in life. Um, and it's very different than what he thought it was going to be. This is the romantic ending. And so I'm going to stop right there because I don't want to ruin the romantic ending for everybody. Um, the only heavy-handed thing about this film is the romantic ending, and I give it full forgiveness. It's everything you expect. It's almost cliche, but because of it being in an Alexander Payne framework, it's just lovely. Very much thumbs up. Encourage anybody to see this as it's released. I think you mean highbrow, not thumbs uh, Oh, yeah. Up. Highbrow. Yeah. Apologies. It's been a while since we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it is significant that it was the opening night film of the festival. And for the first time I can remember, I don't think the opening night film has ever been a genre film before. It is a science fiction film. You know, like a lot of people are not going to call it that because it doesn't have robots and space travel. But it absolutely is. But, you know, it doesn't have aliens, but it is a science fiction film. It's a science film. fiction I think it's satire. It's interesting that the, you know, that the, uh, the, the Virginia Film Festival is broadening its remit in terms of like the big prestige film. I think that Alexander Payne is the only major filmmaker I can think of who would be described as a satirist first. Mm -hmm. We need our satirists. You know, some of his films are going to be better than others, but they're always going to, I think they're always going to, there's always a place for him. So uh, Downsizing gets a highbrow from Todd. Highbrow, and the, the Q&A and Mark Johnson does too. So the reason I did not see uh, Downsizing was because I was very intrigued by this film called Shelter. This is a film from 2017, directed by Aaron Rickless. Aaron Riklis, not quite sure how you say it. It's an Israeli film. This film is about a German woman who is a Mossad agent, and she is given an assignment to uh, look after and take care of a Lebanese woman who has defected and left Lebanon and is going to be working with the Israelis against Hezbollah. She has gotten cosmetic surgery and changed her face because she knows people are after her. So basically Israel is going to protect her for the uh, couple of weeks it takes for her her face to heal and then she's going to travel to Israel but she's uh, cooling her heels for the time being in Germany, in Hamburg, Germany, which is where the film takes place. She can't go out, uh, nobody's allowed in. Most of the film is these two women, this uh, Lebanese defector and this uh, German-Israeli spy uh, bonding together in this apartment. Lots of coupling here, lots of resonances between films that I saw. This was another spy movie that didn't really know how to be a spy movie. Um, Again, another spy movie with some very bad dialogue. And, and some both very... had such good one-sheets. Yeah, really, really good one-sheets. <laughs> they one looked sheet. so yeah. good. Yeah, um, it was much better written than Magnum Opus. But 
this has the opposite problem from Magnum Opus, I think. Whereas Magnum Opus tried so hard to be objective, this is essentially an Israeli propaganda film. Mm. You go through the entire film and you're watching these women bond and on and on and on, and then you get to the end and the essential message of the film is Israel good, Palestine bad. It's an Israeli film. They have every right to do that. Every country creates propaganda films. But it just, it, it felt like a bait and switch, and it felt really unfair. And American audiences and film fests have every right not to accept that film. Yeah. If you take away the propagandistic aspect, and you take away the, um, the sort of excursions into action and suspense thriller territory that it goes a few times over the course of the film, what you're left with is actually a very kind of interesting and very well acted, extremely well acted actually, story of these two women from very different um, lifestyles and points of view bonding over their essential shared humanity, which would have been a much better film if that were the focus of the film. That's all I really feel like saying about Shelter. Uh, Lowbrow and uh, really a disappointment because that film could have really been something interesting and special. You had a tougher first day than I did. Yeah, and <laughs> that that was the end of Thursday and that brings us to Friday. Can I set a real quick mood context for this entire festival that we are in Virginia November 9th through 12th, which is right in the middle of what would be fall here. And it was riding somewhere between 30 and 35 degrees almost every single day. It was so cold. <laughs> and raining half of the time. Yeah. And so as we're leaping between venues, just imagine us layered and bundled and unwrapping and rewrapping <laughs> and everybody in the festival doing this. And so the street's not quite as buzzy as they would normally be during a film festival, but the theater's every bit as packed. Once yeah. again, compliment to the... Uh, festival indeed the first screening for both of us on friday was a little film by uh kevin jerome everson called tonsler park yes it was once again thanks to ty uh, ty cooper uh who arranged for my class to get tickets to uh this film uh, free tickets so i brought uh, seven of my students along on a little field trip to the theater. The added bonus being that I got to get out of work and go to see a film at the Virginia Film <laughs> Festival as well as uh, as them getting to uh, get out of school. So everybody was happy. Uh, Kevin Everson is a local filmmaker who is a professor at the University of Virginia. Um, mostly known for making experimental avant-garde shorts. Uh, this is a documentary feature by him, one of a few he has done. This is uh, a film in which Kevin Everson uh, took uh, cameras into the polling place at Tonsler Park on election day of 2016, the day of the la most recent uh, presidential election in the United States, and he put the cameras across the room and pointed them at polling officials and this was the polling place in Tonsler Park 
uh, in Charlottesville, a predominantly and historically African-American neighborhood. The cameras were focused on people who were African-American people working the polls. I think it would be important to um, add in that it's um, traditionally African-American neighborhood that is in the midst of some pretty heavy gentrification. Yes. The film is essentially eight reels of film. It's a static shot. Each shot, there is no non-diegetic sound. There is no music of any kind. It's a static shot just watching the polling officials and and most of the time there are people's backs in between the camera and the subject uh, in many cases all you see is the person's back it looks it, like a black screen they're basically making dirty crosses across the yes. camera non-stop in front of the subject matter yeah. and it's shot with a pretty tight frame yeah. telephoto lens yeah a telephoto lens so you don't really get a sense of the space a lot it, of it shallow focus space. right so everything in front and behind yeah. softens yeah yeah um and that is the film there's no dialogue the sound that there is is out of sync with the picture, which uh, Todd tells me is a characteristic technique that Everson uses in all of his films. Literally it's, out uh, of sync. It's black and white. But not necessarily conceptually out of sync. Right, right. Yes. Uh, and there were some cuts. My students afterwards talking about it, they said, no, he just shot until the film ran out. And that's not true. There are two times in the film where you actually see the film run out and it you know, flickers and goes to white like it does when, when a reel of film runs out. Um, but there are several cuts. There's a few, especially like most of the shots are static and obviously on sticks, <laughs> as we say in the business. Um that's what we call a tripod <laughs> on a film set. Like, <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> there are a few handheld shots, and those handheld shots only last for, for two or three minutes, not the full ten like the statics do. I'm having a tough time remembering the handhelds, but I do also remember a couple of adjustments while on sticks yes. that still created a kind of awkwardly moving lens for a moment or yeah. a wandering lens for a yeah. moment. And within that aesthetic, um, there are many times that he allows you to see behind the curtain. Like once again, letting the um, tail end of the reel run out and um, going to white leader, um, where you just have that flash of white into the screen. And he'll incorporate that into the edit very intentionally because there are other times that he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, and other techniques similar to that. So his imagery and his style as a formalist filmmaker um, is consistently black and white, grainy. Um, I think he typically uses telephoto lenses, but certainly typically moves in and out of focus um, with his subject matter. The shorts I had seen of his, the camera was much more moving um, and the pacing was much more moving. It wasn't this Andy Warhol-esque static patient um, and at times even tedious um, pacing, very, once again, very intentional. I think there was a point that Colin and I even discussed um, the film and uh, Mr. Everson had mentioned that he originally wanted it to be an eight-hour film, I believe. He said 13. 13, and then eight, and then, yeah, and it got cut down to what it was currently, which was... 80 minutes. 80 minutes, yeah. And, um, and what was so interesting to him is, like, sitting in front of a screen watching this, for me, there were moments of it being tedious, 
but I never minded. It wasn't a negative tedious for me. I was um, I was enthralled in aspects of the film that I'm not even sure were part of the intentionality, but I was, I'm also so enthralled by his actual texture and visuals that I could watch that like staring at a painting for quite a while. Um, I don't expect most cinematic viewers to um, be able to do the same within that context. Yeah. And so Colin and I both discussed that, hey, even this as an eight-hour film or a 13-hour film as an installation in a gallery or in an appropriate museum um, would be stunning. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that its home is as an installation piece in a gallery, not to be exhibited in a theater with the lights off for you to sit and watch all of in a sitting. I think it doesn't it doesn't do well. And it's almost a little disrespectful to the film and the intentionality of the film to um, have it in that space. I don't have as natural an inclination towards avant-garde stuff as Todd does, but I liked it. It was, I like slow. I don't always like boring, (laughs) but I like slow and slow doesn't always bore me. And I think that, you know, like with anything, you watch this and at first you're waiting for the cut to happen and are waiting for, you know, the voiceover to show up or something. And when that doesn't happen, you start to search for things in the frame to keep you interested. And what you're Thank searching you for, for is what you find is nuances in people's faces, their expressions. And you really get very familiar with these people that the camera's pointing at. And you also find little subtleties of image. I think the part, And there were certain things in this that I actually, believe it or not, found thrilling. Uh, One part in particular where in between the camera and the woman it's pointed at, there are some other uh, poll workers who are kind of sitting at a table just out of frame, very, very fuzzy out of focus. And they're just sort of every once in a while their hands or their faces will come into frame and it looks ghostly. It looks like these sort of ghostly, like wispy apparitions in front of the camera. And there's several times where, where this woman's hand is perfectly positioned that whatever she's doing with it, she puts it in the frame and it sits right on top of the woman, the actual subject of the shot, it sits right on top of her face. So so several times for several seconds, you have this ghostly white fist that is almost like superimposed on top of a black woman's face. You know, unintentional, but what emerges is a very eloquent gesture, a cinematic gesture and, and physical gesture. Very much so. And I feel like the film was filled with moments like that. Um, I want to first address what... Um, Colin said initially about the exhibition and um, and full respects for everything he said. And, and I don't disagree that, that particularly a longer version um, would be done much more justice in, in a different um, atmosphere. However, um, for me personally, and, and I'm sure others that, um, that are a little more accustomed to the language of, of this sort of cinema, um, that... I was perfectly fine sitting for 80 minutes watching this in that arena. I and, was and, too. And think it, and I think even think it was appropriate for, for a screening of that sort, the 80-minute version. Yeah. Um, and like Cullen said, is what I really loved was being forced to just explore the frame. And so texturally, his frames are so rich. Um, he's shooting with an Aries, which is an old 16-millimeter uh, camera. I've actually shot with one before. 
with a film stock that has super high grain, the textural elements become extremely unique and extremely rich. And from the Q&A, it seems as if um, Mr. Everson is, everybody's enamored by t the textual exploration and the visual explorations of those sorts as he was by the subject matters themselves. Yeah. And initially said he actually wanted more of those dirty passes yeah. in front of the camera to create more texture and less clarity on the subject matter. But as a viewer, with each one of these subject matters, these almost rich underlying thought stories started coming to my head as yeah. I was watching their nuances yeah. and all the subtleties of their gestures and their grins. And then when their faces would fall back to flat. How who, many more hours until I'm off? Right. And another lady who seems like a great grandma, but probably not a churchgoer. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here thinking she's got a little worry in her eyes, you know, like she, but she'll be smiling and joyful every time she interacts with somebody. But the minute she has a little downtime, yeah. she'll lull and she goes into, it's very obvious she lulls into thought. Yeah. And it's almost like, oh, I got to talk to my granddaughter when I get home about that right. thing. Or, um, or I mean, considering what they're there for, they might be worried about what's going to happen <laughs> to absolutely. the country. Oh, absolutely. And, and that as well. And, and so this is an interesting thing as well. As somebody asked him why he picked Tonsler Park, and I, this is two years in a row that I've watched Q&As with Kevin Everson, and I have come to love his answers. But his answer to the question was, because that's my polling place. Right. That's where he votes. <laughs> Very simply. That's where and I vote. presumably it's the closest one to his house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I love that that was his answer. Yeah. But then he goes on, and, and he'll share things along the lines of um, the intentionality of what he was actually trying to tackle conceptually absolutely was addressing the social issue. It yeah. wasn't just a textural fine art piece. Yeah. That um so even though he would tell you that, you know, I wasn't necessarily exploring the subject matters, I was exploring the texture, but his prep for the piece was absolutely exploring the concept because his answers on that were, you know, that he used to live in Cleveland and voter suppression has been going on his entire life he's been watching this. And so he really wanted to make a point that was, you know, a portrait of um of African-Americans in a voting atmosphere. Yeah. And um, and to address, I think pretty directly to address, you know, loosely to touch on, you know, voter suppression. I think the juxtaposition was intentional yeah. in a lot of ways and the exploration was intentional. Sure. And so within there, what may or may not have been intentional were some very potent images that um, I noticed there was one point where one of the main subject matters who we stayed on for quite a few minutes of a static quite a few minutes of a static with the dirty passes going on and um and right behind her the entire time you could only see the shoulder and the arm cutting into the right hand side of the frame and it was somebody standing behind her who was obviously working for the polls as well and it was very evident it was a white person's hand. Mm -hmm. There was another scene like what Colin was talking about where you could see people sitting behind another one of the African-American pollsters. And it was a row of two black or of two white women mm -hmm. who were also sitting there. And so there was an eeriness to that as well. Incidental, I'm sure. But, um, but a certain eeriness that, hey, these African-American women up front doing the pollster work and those that seem to be behind in more of an inspector role or an overlooking role, yeah. typically being white figures. Yeah. My students, they hated it, <laughs> which is fine and understandable. It's a hard thing to have a taste for at that age. And I think they all pretty much felt like it had its head up its own ass. Multiple of my students actually said this, that they wanted to ask him in the Q&A why, you know, he his stated intention was to make a film about uh, voter suppression of African-Americans. Then why wasn't that featured in the film? My answer to that was, well, I mean, 
if you think about this concept of all of these people standing in between us and these and these um and these workers you know you're you're constantly trying to like peek around people's backs so you can you know see the people it's it's sort of you know symbolic of all of the obstacles that stand between us and the democratic process and between you know black people in particular in the democratic process and they said that they thought that that interpretation was a stretch <laughs> and the only reason that the film was like that was because they were forced to put the f- a camera far away from the people so that their identities would be protected my own take is much closer to what uh cullen said plus probably a bit more of their their the pacing yes even tedious for me at times but there wasn't a moment that i was not engaged in the imagery on the other side of things i did at one point during the screening look to my left and look to my right and realize that the people on both sides of me were asleep yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely so uh tonsler park i give a high brow um just know what you're getting into i give an extremely high brow no warnings and um and um and I love it that um Cullen um is willing to bend um um to appreciate this as much as he um does at this point. You I think know? all you have to do is go in with an open mind. I agree. Like be willing to let the film take you where it wants to take you. And it's this I thank you for saying that. And it's the same thing I've had to learn with um as you've Patience. opened me up to new genres. So that brings us to uh another film that we saw together which was a documentary, 2017, called Birth of a Movement. Indeed. Directed by Susan Gray and Bester Cram. So this film is essentially about... Well, the the logline of the film uh, will tell you that it's about the protests uh, against Birth of a Nation, the uh, D.W. Griffith film when it came out in 1915, and the efforts to get it shut down. While it does tell that story, it's really broader and is about a uh, few parallel lives, actually, D.W. Griffith, the filmmaker, and William Monroe Trotter, um, who was... And again, this is... Like I said, this you know there are some echoes between films for me. This was a film that made me aware of a guy who uh, was one of three leading lights of a certain movement at a certain time, much like with the Charles Hamilton film. I know W.B. Du Bois and I know Booker T. Washington. I've read both of their work. Of, of their works, I had never heard of William Monroe Trotter before. And you know, people in the film talk about him on the same level intellectually and um, in terms of cultural relevance at the time as Du Bois and Washington. The it's, film is very much about him. I don't know who else would be the protagonist. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's more about his mission, him leading the mission against Birth of a Nation yeah. um, exhibition than it is about anything else. I have never seen Birth of a Nation I've seen bits of it, uh, you know, the bits that they showed in the film. Uh, there was probably more of Birth of a Nation in Birth of a Movement than I have ever watched uh, before otherwise. Todd, I think, has seen the whole thing. Yes. I've seen the whole thing, yes. Okay, yeah. 
and it's not his fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's required uh, screening in film school. Yeah, the film, to say the least. And it is taught in film school and in media studies. You know, introductory level. You know, film courses as an important film and as the first film to use a lot of techniques of storytelling, which we now take for granted. You know, we're not incipient to the art of uh, filmmaking somebody had to invent that stuff and it turns out the guy that invented that stuff was also a vile racist (laughs) um and the big revelation to me i knew this i knew birth of a nation's reputation as a racist film but i didn't quite know how just how backwards it was it was racist for its time even having seen the entire film in the context of film school and, and knowing that it had been um, used as a recruitment, used as a recruitment film, film for the KKK. and on and on. And somehow naivety or whatever it may be, watching this documentary was when it really kicked home how heavy and intentional the racism was, how unapologetic the racism was, and how, like Cullen said, how racist it was even for its time and how much of a battle over the racism in it in its own time. As far as this film goes, uh, another, like Shadow Man, very clean, very efficiently told documentary, archival footage and talking heads, not too much of either one. Some you know, great pretty talking good balance heads. of the two of them. Yeah, 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 really, really interesting. The academics they chose. Yeah were exquisitely good absolutely and of course there's always the one uh guy who's griffith's biographer who tries Mm. to walk the line a little bit defending him and that you know that's a little embarrassing you know to hear him talk about it has a lot of resonance with uh things that are happening today because griffith of course wrapped himself in the first amendment and you know, when people tried to get his films shut down, he said, how dare they try to censor me? This is freedom of expression. And the activists at the time, Trotter among them, were taking the position that no, uh, free speech has limits. And when there is something that is likely to incite racial violence, um, we are we are justified in seeking for that to be, if not suppressed, at least at least monitored and and taken very seriously. Stop me when any of this is starting to sound familiar. The theater production of this film, which was originally called The Klansman, by the way, based on a book called The Klansman, a romance of the old South, and the film originally came out under the name of The, the Klansman. Klansman. Yeah, so. It's a story of Reconstruction South from the perspective of white people, and they absolutely believed the Klan to be the ones who came in and saved the day. Spike Lee, interviewed in the documentary, uh, said it best, you know, in talking about how how when they when they present the uh, film in light of its historical importance to film students and other media students and history students. They don't give really the full context about how single-minded and um, bigoted the film is. He said they always call him the 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 godfather of cinema. How about call him the racist godfather of cinema, or even better, the godfather of racists? <laughs> <laughs> so when he said that, two thoughts came across my mind. The first thought was. 
oh, this is the same pitch I've made about Elvis. Uh -huh. Instead of calling him the king of rock and roll, call him the king of stolen rock and roll. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and then the other thought that went through my mind was, oh, my God, Spike Lee went to NYU in the 80s, and they had this soft presentation of this film as this pinnacle film that shaped so many of the techniques, whether it be shooting, editing, um, parallel action, um, B-roll, cutaways, all these techniques that did not exist in narrative storytelling cinema before this film. Right. And so when I went to film school, I graduated in 2008. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, it was presented to me exactly the same way. And so when Spike Lee is saying this on film, I'm literally sitting there pulling out my hair being like, once again, naive white man moment, pulling out my hair being like, oh, shit. Yeah. This is where my naivety about this film came from, and this is where I brushed it over, brushed over it. Yeah. And then seeing these moments broken off that were some of the most racist moments of the film and put into this documentary, and it just makes you sick, honestly. It, yeah. it's, it's brutally grotesque. President Woodrow Wilson, the same guy that won World War One, apparently. Yeah, screw that dude. Screamed. <laughs> it was the first private. It was the first screening of a film in the White House. Was Birth of a Nation. The Klansman. What was the Klansman? Because he was <laughs> he was friends with D. W. Griffith. Uh huh. And and D. W. Griffith was a superstar just, at this point. You know, cronies. And he said that it was history writ in lightning. That was the quote from Woodrow Wilson about Birth of a Nation. So, As he filled his entire cabinet with yeah. uh, Southern Reconstructionists. Right. Yeah. The ruling class has never, ever been on the side of civil rights. That's a myth. That's pretty much all I have to say about this film. I think it's a very important film. I would encourage everyone to see it. It's an important film in that it attempts to right a wrong i agree completely highbrow i agree completely um with everything that cullen said but um what i would like to throw in is a um a begging a uh, recommendation a uh, whatever you'd like to call it to all of those film professors out there that i know um most did not intend to do the injustice in presenting this film that they did and they do have to teach this film. There was one gentleman, a talking head at the end of it, that kind of nailed it, who was a professor at Harvard, I believe, who was like, you know, you can be honest about both sides of it. And my problem with how it was presented in film school, as it seemed Spike Lee's problem was as well, was that one was covered and the other one was brushed across. So that was Birth of a Movement, uh, Todd Highbrow? Oh, absolute highbrow, and agreed with Colin. Um, traditional documentary filmmaking just done exquisitely well um, with um, extreme importance. Yeah. yeah. So next, I moved along to uh, uh, over back to the Violet Crown to see a film called Word Is Bond. This is a 2017 another documentary, another 2017 documentary directed by Sacha Jenkins, and. Um, this is a film that is about hip-hop lyricism. It, um, there have been documentaries in the past that have focused on rapping in general. Uh, Ice-T made, a, uh, made a, a documentary a couple years ago called The Art of Rap, um, which is very similar in structure to this one. Uh, but this one is focused specifically on what Royce to 5'9", one of the interview subjects in the film, calls 
the MC's love affair with language. And he said, the M- he said MC's in general are never really given credit. Like, they're sometimes given credit for being social commentators and sometimes given credit for, you know, being um, uh, storytellers. But they're never really given credit for having fallen in love with the English language. And so it's, it's really focused specifically on lyrics. Uh, they go into the process of how different MCs write their lyrics. Um, and the interview subjects all have really interesting things to say. It's um, a lot of heavy hitters. Nas is in there. Uh, Rakim is in there. They have J. Cole in there. Big Daddy Kane. Um, you've got people like Jadakiss and Styles P from The Locks. You got Brother Ali and Slug. You've got uh, Tech Nine. They talk to um, Flatbush Zombies. They talk to Fashion. They talk to Rhyme Fest in Chicago. It's a film that's produced by Mass Appeal, which is Nas's production company and record label. Uh, but Sasha Jenkins is the one who made it, and Sasha Jenkins has, is a, a documentarian who's been making hip-hop documentaries and um, doing hip-hop journalism for many, many years. Again, a very straight, very clean, very pure talking head documentary. Um, s- there's some hand-drawn animation in there, which is kind of cool. Uh, when a lot of the points are being made, you know, the, you know, uh, you have uh, someone drawing the scene that they're describing. Just a really, really solid documentary, probably, you know, especially for someone whose tastes in hip-hop lie where mine do. This is probably one of the best hip-hop documentaries I've ever watched. Um, and that's really all I have to say about that. Highbrow. My friend, uh, and, uh... Sometimes colleague Damani Harrison got to give the introduction, and uh, I ended up getting pulled onto the panel for the Q&A uh, at the end of the film, which was nice. It's the sort of film that recommends itself, because if you're interested in it, you're gonna watch it. You know, just like seeing that the film exists, you're gonna seek it out and watch it. So I can't really recommend it to anybody, because anybody who wants to see it is gonna see it already. But Absolutely. Start off with um, something that uh, I know Cullen won't do for himself, but um, Cullen is a um, very accomplished hip hop artist himself. Um, he is also a very big player in the local hip hop artist scene. He has recently organized the first hip hop festival along with a handful of others yeah. um, that are all major players on the scene, organized the first hip hop festival that Charlottesville has ever seen, and it had a stunning response and I assume will carry on for many more. Um, so um, let him not tread so lightly on his <laughs> uh, hip hop criteria. Um, but you mentioned that it was uh, one of the best that you've ever seen, if not the best. What made it above and beyond? Just the quality of the commentary. A lot of times rappers don't give really great interviews. That's what was so great about the Ice-T documentary uh, from a few years ago that it's an MC talking to other MCs. Yes. Like, there's certain conversations that I can only have with other rappers. Only somebody who is has a really deep understanding of the culture is able to ask the right questions to get the good responses from the subjects. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That explains why I've 
watched what seemed like insulting interviews with hip hop artists so often. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times, if the person, if the person who's asking the question clearly doesn't understand, you just won't get an answer, or you'll get a bullshit well, answer. Better, like be, when better someone than if they don't understand, if they don't even fully respect. Right. Because yeah. this is this is a an art form that has had to fight and scrape for its respect. And, right. And I w- it seems like just in the last decade or two that we finally said, hey, this is a very pinnacle contemporary art form that must be engaged. You yeah. Know? So like I said, the Ice-T documentary and this are very similar in their approach. But what I think made this better was the focus. It was a very narrow focus. It was on words. Nice. So, Todd, you went back to the Paramount, didn't you? I did, man. Kind of broke my rule of uh, film festing to some degree and went and saw another relatively mainstream film that I know will get a release. There were a few components that caught my attention with this. One being that it was directed by and acted in by William H. Macy. Um, I, everybody loves William H. Macy, right? I don't have to sit here and defend uh, my love of William H. Macy. Um, I, I love me some Frank Gallagher. Don't love everything about the show, but sure as heck love his character. Um, I will never, ever, ever, ever forget him in Fargo. So um, a nice treat that he was actually there for the screening as well um, for the Q&A. Um, so the film itself, this was a film that... Um, that had a really tough time getting to the screen. It was actually somewhat of a passion project by the producer. The name of the film is Crystal, K-R-Y-S-T-A-L, yes. Which is actually the name of Rosario Dawson's character. Actually, I'm going to read this little summary down here because I would rather talk about the film than go too far into the narrative. This was a uh, a viewer-written storyline summary on IMDb. Crystal is a comedic drama about a young man who has never had a drink in his life. Upon meeting the woman of his dreams, Crystal, an ex-hooker, stripper, junkie, alcoholic, he pretends to be an AA to try and woo her. In order to have even a hint of a chance, he must face his own demons and learn what it means to live without fear in order to finally become a man. Really, really well-written story. Um, One that I feel like could have been seen to more complete fruition, actually. so really good stri- script, really interesting story, really interesting characters, very quirky, in line with 90s indie, which anybody that's listened to this podcast knows I have great love for the style of 90s indie. It reminds me, um, for instance, of a little indie film I saw, um, believe it or not, one of the few good roles that I've seen Keanu Reeves in, a little film called Thumbsucker that this really reminded me stylistically of, and that would be my example of the version of this film that was seen a little more to completion. The family and the chemistry between the family was one of the more interesting things about this. A proper Southern family, father's a professor at Emory, an extremely literary, played by Macy, and um, his mother's a poet, his brother's a painter, and he's just him. He doesn't really have his thing, and so he's always looking for his thing. And one day he sees this woman, Rosario Dawson, and he just works at a little gallery downtown um, with a character played by Kathy Bates. And so he becomes enamored by the Rosario Dawson character and follows her to an AA meeting, as the summary said. And it kind of carries on from there of him trying to enamor Rosario Dawson and being convinced that he has truly fallen in love with her. And he takes on the persona of this guy, Bo, that he heard share his story at an AA meeting that's the tough, good-hearted bad boy. 
And so he tries to become this bad boy to attract Rosario Dawson. It turns out that William H. Macy, the father, had actually uh, hired Rosario Dawson back in the stripper days. That becomes a big feud, um, all very humorously presented. Um, but the biggest thing that happens, the main character, Taylor, becomes very good friends with Rosario Dawson's son, who is in a wheelchair. And um, very cool, tough kid, but he's in a wheelchair. And that actually kind of becomes the defining relationship of the film in a lot of ways. Mm. And the underlying premise truly coming out to basically what that initial summary said, it was all about finding yourself through overcoming fears. With that being said, the entire film, there would be moments that just felt incomplete. That's the best way I can say it. Um, it felt like a film that was strained by budget, which it was. Felt like a film that um, maybe didn't get to shoot everything they wanted to exactly the way they wanted to. Um, certainly didn't get the rehearsals that they wanted. Another thing I'd like to point out is that this is William H. Macy's third directorial. Um, so he's not a director by nature. Um, with that being said, he got some stunning performances. He didn't necessarily get some of the other very important components that a director needs. And in the Q&A, I got a hint at what was missing from the film. That they were carrying on a discussion and William H. Macy decides to make a joke. But the producer who's sitting on stage with him, he said, she keeps asking me, what's the, what's the tone of the film? What's the tone of the film? And he goes, I just keep looking at her and being like, what do you mean the tone of the film? The minute he said that, I was like, aha. <laughs> That's what's missing. You didn't know what the tone of the film was until the end of the film. It did not have a consistent tone, right. and which made the premise get a little lighter, made your investment in the characters fall off a little bit. Still found myself invested in the characters. I still cared. I never wanted to leave the film. Um, the depiction of the AA rooms and the 12-step program scenario seemed to be relatively respectful. So I, I think I'll just kind of leave it at that, that a um, really good script, really good performances, and a director that perhaps did not exactly know which film he was making until they were partway through, and not necessarily his fault. I'm going to give it a highbrow because the things that were good were very good. But I debated it. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I believe I gave it three out of five, which was one of the lower ones I gave mm -hmm. during this festival. Huh. And um, so of good. the big films, um, you know, yeah, definitely not on the same level as, as, as downsizing and, and some of the others, but, but plenty to be engaged by. If, if it pops up on your uh, streaming services, give it a watch. I feel like actor-turned-directors, mm -hmm. um, obviously they're usually very good directors of actors because they know what actors need. Like You can learn a lot about making films by being an actor, but control of tone, I think, is one of those things that... It, you know, isn't necessarily going to come naturally to an actor turned director because when you're an actor, you're concerned with yes. your character. It can be the kiss of death for a film when it's confused tonally, it never really lands anywhere. That can really destroy a film. So I think it's probably a testament to all the other stuff that was good that you actually still enjoyed the film despite those tonal problems. <laughs> Why do you think Rosario Dawson plays so many strippers? I don't know why they play her in that direction so yeah. much. I think that natural kind of 
fuck it rock and roll attitude right. probably leads people to say, hey, I can fit you into this role pretty well. Right. You yeah. know? Um, I think it's kind of, I mean. I think she enjoys roles like that. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, not that there's anything wrong with being a stripper, obviously. Right. But it, it seems a little... She's much know. more than that. Yeah, she's much more than she's that. She's a darn good actress as yeah. well as she's one of those ones who's a natural presence on screen. Put a camera on her, aging or not, and she's just, you're just attracted to her persona. Aging? She, How old is she, like 35? Oh, no, I think she's well into her 40s. Oh, really? I think so. Aging. And well, still aging. It looks fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just Aging. Right. Um, but, um... Yeah, yeah, that that's yeah. I think I think we pretty much nailed that one. Word. Yeah. All right. So there's Crystal. So um, after that, I had about an hour and a half break. Uh, What'd you do in that hour and a half break? I went and had dinner. Nice. So you actually ate a meal during the film fest? Yeah, it was a good meal. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Todd, what did you do? Um, I traveled over to France. Thought thought um, uh, a film fest just couldn't be complete unless I took a jolt to France and back, you know? A French film that um, has quite a bit of buzz um, was a uh, feature film at Cannes. Um, I am going to mutilate this name. Uh, director Arnaud Desplessin. Desplessin. <laughs> Desplessin. <laughs> Let me see if I can help you with that. Arnaud Desplessin. And it's um, starring a few... Um, few uh, female actors that um, I think our audience will be um, a bit familiar with. Um, Marianne Cotillard. Did I say her name well enough? Marion Cotillard. I can't do it with the French accent. <laughs> and uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, who um, I personally adore. Yeah. Um, yeah I have never cool. seen her in a film when she's not l absolutely wonderful. Um, Even when she's cutting her clitoris off with uh, pruning shears i can't imagine what you're talking about <laughs> did she somehow get intertwined with somebody named von trier <laughs> who would be in his film um so i'm actually Twice. going to um read the summary from the festival website and it's a pretty good one actually so um france 2017 so just as the disheveled and alcoholic filmmaker ishmael um, played by Matthew Almerick, embarks on a difficult new film project. His life is sent into a tailspin. His wife, played by uh, Cotillard, presumed dead for 20 years, come crashing back into his life, creating chaos in his work and his current romantic relationship with the starry-eyed astronomer Sylvia, played by Gainsbourg. The portrait of a troubled character deals with espionage, melodrama, and hauntings from the past. Ismail's Ghosts premiered at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. So this film, um, exquisitely well shot. This is one of those times that I'm watching a French film, and my only thought is, why do we always try to do too much in American cinema? <laughs> I mean, such simple, direct, and well-thought-out camera movements, camera framings, nothing wasted, nothing gratuitous, just crisp beautiful shots when they moved the camera there was a reason when it was handheld there was a reason and it was fluid um this film knew its tone inside and out um probably the first thing they came up with for this film um stunning color palette stunning production design and somehow they do it for one-tenth the budget that we do 
Why? Because they're not using cranes. <laughs> they're just doing beautiful dolly shots and beautiful tracking shots. And it's just stunning. Absolutely exquisite performances. Some of the best performances I've seen in a while. Yes, there was melodrama. And so the performances played to that a little bit. But as with most French cinema that leans towards melodrama, there's always an underlying realism beneath it um, that somehow allows the melodrama to have its full emotional impact without seeming heavy-handed. Um, the narrative itself had a very nifty, um, somewhat narrative um, gimmick to it. I don't want to call it quite a gimmick. A um, little bit of a nonlinear storytelling. Lots of um, also film references in this as well. So anybody that's um, tuned to film history, European cinema, you'll find quite a few little um, um, nudges. So as you watch him kind of fall to pieces... He's supposed to be making this film, and you actually see scenes from the film interjected into the main narrative. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, it certainly has a um, conclusion, but I will um, challenge you to watch it and um, see it for yourselves. And um, Always leave them wanting and, more. And, uh, and this film comes highly recommended from me. Highbrow, to say the least. Highbrow, to say the least, for Ismail's Ghosts. So... My next film, after my, my nice long dinner, and uh, my last film of Friday, was a, uh, an old film, uh, one of the two uh, repertory screenings that I saw uh, at this festival. Alfred Hitchcock's 1927, The Lodger. I could not pass this up because I am a massive admirer and lover of Alfred Hitchcock. Um... This is some early Hitchcock, isn't it? Yes. This was actually his second feature film. Oh, wow. His first thriller. His first, I believe, to be his first horror film. Some people don't don't like to call it a horror film. I think it counts. His first wrong man uh, narrative, you know, the thread that runs through so much of Hitchcock's stuff. The wrongfully accused. Um, and also the beginning of his formal obsession with... Blondes. It was introduced, uh, this particular screening was at the Paramount, so great to see a silent film in a theater like that, also with live accompaniment by an, uh, by an uh, ensemble. Uh, it was introduced by Ben Mankiewicz, uh, the dude who has a show on Turner Classic Movies, uh, film historian. <laughs> And the live musical accompaniment by Matthew Marshall and the Real Music Trio. Real spelled they with two E's, obviously. Yes. Bravo. This was a, a, a new score, which was written by Matthew Marshall, electric piano, uh, a tenor saxophone, and a viola. I had um, no idea. That's exquisite that they did yeah. that. At the par- that had to have been romantic as heck. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say about it. It's one of those films that um, it's a very... F- foundational film and you can see the seeds of so many things that he did you know later on both thematically and uh visually that start to take shape here but it's all in kind of embryonic form but it's a really entertaining film it's only 68 minutes long the scenes set inside the boarding house where most of the film happens are a little bit a little bit stagey but the stuff that happens in the street outside um beautiful lighting really atmospheric with all the fog and uh i don't feel like re- telling the plot because i think uh, most people know it it's a 
basically a, a tale about Jack the Ripper, but he's called the Avenger in the film. And mm -hmm. you know, there's a serial killer on the streets and the, a boarding house where a new lodger comes to stay, and they start to suspect that he might be Jack the Ripper, and or he might be the Avenger, and at the same time he's wooing the daughter, and there's a policeman and he's on his on his trail. And I will say that though it was nice and romantic to have the music, I don't think the music it didn't do a whole lot for me. The score, it was written especially for this exhibition. It was very standard suspense film. Do you music. know what the original score on its screening was like? No, no, no one knows. That's it's, what I was wondering lost. if they had any information on it. Most of the time the distributors would just send um, like, notes meaning that every exhibition did not necessarily have the same score by any means right yeah yeah by yeah. no means yeah they would send suggestions right i think most of the time um but yeah the score didn't really do a lot for me it was very standard it was pretty much exactly what you'd hear if you got the dvd i think this is my second or third experience with a silent film with a live score and i am more interested in it when they do something a little more unique a little yeah. more unexpected. It does make you think about your relationship to films and music. Yeah. You know, we we so often don't really pay much attention to what that combination does to our brain. Um, so, yeah, that was The Lodger. I mean, the film, obviously, I give it a high brow. The score and the performance of the score, I guess it. If, if you put a gun to my head, I'd give it a high brow, but it was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty much indifferent. Yeah. And that was the end of Friday. That was a pretty strong uh, beginning to a festival, I would say. Absolutely. And um, if it were to possibly be able to get any stronger in the following two days, I just don't know what I would do with myself. <laughs> well, you will have to wait and find out for yourself because just as that was the end of Friday, that is the end of the first half of our 2017 Virginia Film Festival coverage, episode 19A. We'll see you back here for episode 19B, where we talk about the films we saw Saturday and Sunday. I can't wait. And until then... I'm Todd, and keep it artsy. I'm Cullen. Keep it crass. Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. The email is artscraftspodcast at gmail.com, or you can say hi on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crafts. They have a white logo. We have a red and black one. Should be pretty easy to tell who's who. He's got a big black cloak hanging down his back. Well, that's a one big cat of just a hate to fight. Well, it walked down the street, every girl he meets says, your name is Blythe. Oh, 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 oh. When she walks down the street, he's never far behind. With his little black bag and his one-track mind.